Okay, so today we'll be reading excerpts from 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10. First, I'll read 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, followed by verse 15. And then I'll end with chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, followed by 13 through 14. So beginning with 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from, and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, followed by 13 through 14. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Verses 13 through 14. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Austin, for tackling that and reading some hard words for us. My name's Sam. It's a privilege to preach the word of God this morning. Let's pray together before we get into it. Our Father, we ask for your help and ask God that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us in this text. Uh, God, would we inspect it and God, would you inspect our hearts uh, as we do so and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've always enjoyed like medieval movies, um, 
you know, with great battles and conquests, kings and queens and armies. Uh, I find there to be you know, something kind of primal and, and unfiltered and simple about the display of victory and defeat we have in those films. I you know, think like Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, even The Last Samurai. Uh, I loved them when I was little and still now. Um, well, I think today, you know, we, we feel like maybe we're in a, a world removed from those films from that time, but we still long for those elements of, of victory, for security. We long for safety. Um, even prosperity and blessing. So in a sense, I think we still long to be a part of a great kingdom. And I want to suggest we actually long to be under the rule of a great king, in a sense. Yeah, think back to like the midst of COVID. And as the danger kind of seemed to rise, you know, it felt like our dependence on the government actually increased. We looked to them for safety and security. Or think of, you know, when a power in the world rises up, such as Russia or somewhere, all the people in the world tend to look to their leaders for safety and security and blessing. We long to be a part of a kingdom that's secure. We long to be uh, under the rule of a great king. In this passage, we have what could be called the, the golden um, period of, of Israel's history. It's this, this period where the Israelites are living under the rule of a great king, David. You know, they're, they're defending their land, they're expanding their land, but this period of conquest is different to others. Because this is a golden period that points us to a far greater one. But these are victories that point us to a far greater victory. And this is a king here who points us to a far greater king in Jesus. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard uh, Pete preach on the Davidic covenant in Second um, Samuel chapter 7. And last week, uh, Andrew touched on it as well. And the Davidic covenant was, was God's great commitment to his people to raise up a, a king and a savior from the line of David. So the message there was there's one coming who's going to be far greater than David. Well, if that's the message of, of 2 Samuel chapter 7, then 8 through 10 are kind of like an exclamation point. They're, they're kind of saying, in the context of what's come before, they're saying, look how great King David is. Look how great this, this period in Israel, Israel's history is. And yet, there's one coming who's going to be even better, far better than David. So as we go through today, I want to go from David to Jesus. I want to look at how this great king... Uh, points us to a, a, an infinitely greater king, how this great kingdom points us to an immeasurably greater kingdom. So in an attempt to kind of let the chapters in the text dictate our structure, we're going to go the king's victory, the king's rule, and the king rejected. And it's worth addressing the elephant in the room, which is that there is a chapter in the middle there, um, chapter 9, if you're astute, you may have noticed that. And it's a, good, it's a really good chapter. It's the story of Mephibosheth, uh, it might be, for some of you, it's your favourite story. Uh, don't worry, we're not skipping it. Uh, we're just leaving it to next week. So today, we're going to kind of go pretty broad, look at the king's, really the king's power uh, and his goodness in that. And next week, Clay is going to preach on that chapter nine, and we're going to zero in on the king's kindness, uh, which is really uh, just demonstrated wonderfully there. I promise, Clay, I wouldn't pincer too far in and take all of chapter nine. So I will try as we go not to do that. So first up, we've got the king's victory, right? In verses 1 to 14, we have you know, David conquering enemies and expanding the border um, of Israel. And I've, I've got an image here that you don't need to be able to see the place names, but this is what is being described. And so the purple um, kind of area of land is Saul's kingdom. So Saul ruled before David, and that's the border of his kingdom. And then the, the green or the blue, which kind of expands out, is the kingdom under David's rule in light of David's victories. So you can see there, it's just pressed outward. By some estimates, it's actually more than doubled in, in size. Like the, the nation of Israel is more than doubled in this time. So it's pretty impressive. 
yeah, we read that the, the Philistines are defeated in the west, the Moabites are defeated in the east, in the north, Hadadezer and the Syrians are conquered, and in the south, the Edomites are overpowered. There's a comprehensive account of victory in literally every direction. And it should be especially impressive, and I think surprising, uh, given Israel's history. 500 years earlier, Israel is a nation of slaves. They are, they are freed from slavery and they, they wander the desert seemingly aimlessly. They kind of enter into this land and then they are here expanding their land. Now, th this is a hard time in history, like a tough place in the world, a tough period of time. It's miraculous that they could kind of break free from slavery, miraculous that they could survive wandering in the desert, miraculous that they could take a land for themselves, that they could defend it, and miraculous here that they can expand it by military conquest. Well, how did they do it? How did this kind of this unlikely nation come to be so so dominant in this part of the world? Well, the answer is stated for us twice in these verses. In 6 and 14, it says, the Lord gave victory. So Israel had something that no other nation had. They had God on their side. In fact, they're God's chosen people. So it's God that's established them and, and brought them up out of, out of nothing. It's God who freed them from slavery, God who protected them in the wilderness, who gave them the land, who helped them protect themselves against the enemies. And here it's God who is helping them and causing them to expand um, their territory. And he's doing it through this King David. Right? It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's what we've seen as we've gone through Second Samuel. We've seen that David is the Lord's instrument. He is the, he is the vessel through which people are experiencing uh, like God's, God himself's power. Like, picture David as like a pipe. Right, through which the, the goodness and the blessing and the power of God comes and, and goes to, to God's people. You know, David's mentioned everywhere in these, in these verses. We have him you know, defeating the Philistines. It says David defeated Moab. David defeated Hadadezer. But we've got to remember in verse 6 and 14, make it very clear that it's God who is the ultimate source of these victories. That's a, that's a great comfort to us. If we look at what God could do for these unlikely people this unlikely nation and even what god can do through through david we can see what god can do we can see that god is unrivaled in power that none can stand against him and so we can see that god can give us the victory now what i'm not saying we need to be careful to understand the distinction here what i'm not saying is that if you believe in god he will grant you health wealth and prosperity that's not that's not true necessarily that that's a wicked idea that makes god some kind of like a magic genie I'm not trying to say that. No, we're saying that we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that God does as he pleases. Later on in the passage, in 2 Samuel, in 10, uh, 12, Joab goes out to fight for David, and he and his men face this, this formidable opposition. Right? It's daunting. And, and, and we see in the face of, of unlikely odds against, or odds against him, we see that his hope is in the Lord. But... His hope is not just that God will provide victory. His hope, his comfort is that God is in control no matter the outcome. He says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now for myself, this is a, a truth, God's control, that I've had to cling to tightly. Uh, there's, there's nothing that causes me anxiety and stress so much as my um, the health of my family, any kind of medical situation. So, you know, my wife, Sarah, now my daughter, Isla, anytime anything medical comes up, that's just a source of anxiety for me. And, and what I'm clambering for in the moment is control 
and it's not, it's what I don't have. So I, I try to find it anywhere I can. I try to find it in, you know, the opinions of medical professionals. I try to find it in solutions. And those things are good, but they're not worth trusting in. They're not, they're not giving me control. But I can rest in the fact that God is in control, right? As, as Joab could, I can rest in the fact that the Lord will do what seems good to him. And he's a far better one to have control than me. I can trust that he can see all things. I can trust that he is good. I can trust that he will do as he pleases. So God's power and control, which we see for David, and we see in this story, they're a present reality for us and a present encouragement. But there's something more in this passage for us. And that's that the king's victory is pointing to this far greater king's far greater victory. So for the past two weeks, and, and really throughout this whole series, we've been seeing how King David points us to King Jesus. I found it helpful to think in terms of uh, shadow and substance. So if you think about a shadow, you think that you're walking around and you see an unexpected shadow on the ground, what do you do? Look up. You look to see what's, what's causing it. The shadow tells us something about the thing. It tells us maybe the shape of it or maybe the size of it something about it, but we know that it points to substance. So it makes us look for the thing. But David here is like the shadow and Jesus is the substance. So in David, we do see something of Jesus. We see, we see some things that are true about him, but ultimately seeing David should make us look up and, and, and see what, try to find Christ. So here in these verses, the emphasis is on David's victories but we see they're just a shadow of the victory that Christ accomplished. See, David achieved these great victories for God's people on earth, you know, physical enemies in the world. Jesus achieved everlasting victory against our spiritual enemies, sin, death, and the devil. In his book, Homo Deus, uh, Yerval Noah Harari suggests that humanity has eradicated war, famine, and the plague, and that we've just got two goals left to attain. One of them, he says, is to eradicate death, is to defeat it. You know, see, death has always been, and it'll, it'll continue to be, a certainty for every person. It's not something that, that governments can guard us against permanently. You know, if we think back to those examples at the start, maybe our, our fear of you know, COVID, our fear of war, our desire for protection from them, perhaps that is a desire for protection from death, but the best we can do is ward it off for a time being. We can't defeat it ultimately. And the Bible tells us that physical death isn't even the worst of it. The Bible tells us that, that death is the punishment for sin and that it ushers us into an eternal judgment. Right? Because we've rebelled against God, we, we die physically and are ushered into a, a state of separation from the goodness and the blessing of God. So, so I would agree with Harari that death is a problem. I would agree that we should seek to eradicate it. In fact, I'd say it's even worse than he thinks. But there's good news. See, as, as those under David could say, we've defeated the Syrians or we've defeated the Moabites. Well, so can we who are under the rule of Christ say, oh, death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? See, on our own, we are doomed. You know, the greatest minds, the greatest Warriors, the greatest people in history, have all succumbed to death, but not King Jesus. The New Testament is clear that, that Jesus did die, and having stayed in the grave for, for three days, he rose from the dead. So as King David's enemies 
and are broke and fled before him, so is the power of death broken before our King and Saviour. Specifically, he, he took the sting out of death by taking the punishment for our sins upon him and declaring us blameless. So we've got to understand this correctly, that death is not gone, but its power is gone. It's not to be feared anymore. The, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. It says, our death is no longer a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. So we no longer need a quake at death's door, you know, waiting for the accountability for our sins that comes on the other side. Now we we can rest assured that Jesus has achieved the victory for us. And so we're taken by the hand by him and we walk with him through death into eternal life. King David was a mighty conqueror and King Jesus was immeasurably more so. That brings us to our second point, which is the, the king's rule. And we see in verse 15, the outcome of David's conquests. It says, so David ruled, reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Those terms, justice and equity, are pretty loaded. They're pretty important. Uh, Sometimes equity there is translated righteousness. And the message here is that David's ruling in the right way. In fact, if we look at Jeremiah 9.24, we see God saying, he says this elsewhere as well, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. So we should actually say that David's ruling in a godly way. You know, again, he's the pipe through which God's people are experiencing something of God himself. But we remember that whilst David was a good king, he was merely a shadow of the king. 200 years after David's death, God, through his prophet Isaiah, describes King Jesus. He says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the rule of Christ does not end. He rules forevermore. Now to live under a king is to, is to live in light of their victories and their defeats. And we know this, like to live under a government like ours is to enjoy the good decisions they make and the wins they have, and it's to suffer the consequences of the mistakes they make or the defeats. Now, for King David's people, they are living in light of his victories. They're enjoying relative safety from the surrounding nations. And similarly, to live under Christ's rule is to live in light of his victory over sin, death, and the devil. Put simply, to live under Christ's rule is to live as we were made to, as we were meant to, as we were designed to. Now, our world tells us something very different about this. Our world preaches this this false truth that that we should be our own people, that we should follow what's in our heart, that in fact in our heart is where happiness is found. If we can be true enough to ourselves, then we'll become fulfilled. What our world is saying is that you should be your own king, you should be your own queen, the master of your the author of your story. That's not what we need. I think deep down we know that doesn't work. We're not made. We weren't created to be kings and queens. We were created by the king to enjoy the blessing of his rule and his reign. Perhaps you're you're here today and, and you're trying to do it yourself. You're trying to be your own king or queen. You're trying to 
make it on your own. You're, you're probably feeling some of the hardships of that, whether you're letting on or not. I suspect you're feeling the tensions there. Well, listen to, to Jesus invite you to call him king. And Pete actually mentioned this verse earlier. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Jesus asks us to submit to him as king. That's what take my yoke upon you means. means bow to me, submit to me, follow me. He asks us to give up everything in a sense. But it's, it's not an onerous call. It's not burdensome. In fact, he says it's one that grants us rest. That's the rest of, of being who you were made to be. That's the rest of belonging to the one to whom you were made created, designed to belong to, being loved by the one that you were made to be loved by. So perhaps today is the day that you think a little bit more about that. Perhaps today is the day that you embrace fully the difficulty of the way that you're living and you consider taking Jesus' yoke upon you, submitting to him and enjoying his rest. And to those who are currently calling King Jesus, those like myself who are currently submitting to him as king, let me ask, is he king over your whole life? Is there any section of your life that you are withholding, that you're holding back? You're saying, Jesus, you can have everything else, but not quite this. So he can be king or not. It's not up to us. We don't get to decide what we get to relinquish to him. And so perhaps for us, there's something that we need to come to him um, in repentance for, something we need to lay at his feet and submit to him again about. If that is you, Know that Jesus will not be bitter or vengeful, but that he will receive you lovingly and with open arms. So David was victorious over his people's enemies, and Jesus was far more so. David's people enjoyed the blessing of his rule. Jesus was, was better, kinder, greater in every way, uh, and he is better and kinder and greater in every way for his people. And yet, just as there were those who rejected David, so are there those who reject Jesus. It's to them that we will turn to now. So in chapter 10, we read that the king of the Ammonites dies. And David thinks, and this is in the NIV, he, he thinks, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David assembles a delegation and he sends it on behalf of himself uh, to, to care for this grieving son. But the son rejects David's delegate. Not only that, but he actually humiliates them. He, he cuts off half their beard and he cuts off their clothes in a particularly revealing way. Half their beard, I think, would be down the middle, would be the most humiliating way. I was wondering if Aaron or um, Austin might want to do that to demonstrate it for us today, but they weren't willing and neither was I. Aaron's getting married like, in a couple of weeks, so it's a, hard, um, it's a hard sell. But they are humiliated, these men. And David is humiliated because they are his representatives. Then this, this new king, having completely rejected the kindness of David, in verse 6, he presumes that David is upset and he hires an army and he goes on the offensive. So he's made a mistake and perhaps he knows he's made a mistake, we're not sure, but he doubles down on his mistake. He gets an army and he goes on the offensive. 
Well, David hears of this, and this is where he sends out Joab to battle. And Joab says, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And God grants victory for David's army. So the Syrians here and the Ammonites, they flee, but it's still not all said and done. See, the Syrians, again, they gather their forces. They've been defeated, but they don't let it sit. They've been defeated. They gather their forces again, and they march again. And when David hears of this, he goes out again, and he defeats them emphatically. So in this chapter that begins with David's kindness toward a grieving son and, and, and ends with him annihilating and, and defeating these people who have rejected him, we have this stark contrast. And it shows us that, that the king's power is not good news to everyone, not necessarily. It's experienced very differently by those who are for and against David. For those who are under David's rule, his power, his military might and God's power through him was, was great news. They experienced blessing and protection. But those who stood against him, well, they experienced the power of God and, and David's military might in battle and in defeat. Now, we know that there's a difference here. Inherently, we know this. It's why we feel... Generally speaking, it's why we feel comfortable seeing a police officer have a gun, but uncomfortable if we see someone else walking down the street with a gun. That when we see someone or something powerful, we, we, we automatically and instinctively, we evaluate whether they're on our side or, or, or not. Are they our friend or our foe? And if they're on our side, if they're for us, we likely feel safe. If they're against us, well, we likely feel scared or at least uneasy. See, David and his army were very powerful. They were made to be a, a force to be reckoned with. And that was great news for those under David's rule, great news for those on David's side, and terrible news for those who are against David. And as we've established, Jesus' power is, is infinitely greater than David's. And that's what we need. See, we need a powerful king. We need a king who is powerful enough to defeat death and who can protect us against our spiritual enemy. Only then can we enjoy the blessing of his rule and only then can everything be made right. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy, the little, little girl in the character, hears about the great lion Aslan, who is a, a picture of Jesus. And upon hearing that he's a lion, she's a bit alarmed. And she asks, is he safe? And the answer comes to her, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If we don't need Jesus to be safe. We need him to be powerful. Because he's powerful, we can rest in the knowledge that he's in control. Because he's powerful, we can trust him when he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. We can trust that he can follow through on that offer. Because he's powerful, we can trust that not even death and the devil can separate us from him. But what we see in this passage is that his, his power is only good news for those who are with him. It's simply catastrophic news to those who are against him. So which are we? Are we for or against Jesus? Well, I appreciated Aaron's testimony, and I think it's a helpful distinction uh, to make that it's not about the things that we do. 
where Jesus is not for us if we've done enough Christian things. Many of us thought that. I thought that for a long period of my life. But it's not about what we do. It's all about Jesus. It's all about our Lord. In Matthew 16, 15, Jesus asks his disciples a question that we all need to answer. He says, who do you say I am? Now, he's previously asked, who do people say I am? And his disciples kind of offer a few suggestions. And then he says, I love J.B. Phillips kind of uh, translates, paraphrases it and says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's a question that we all need to grapple with. It's a question we all need to answer for ourselves. So what is your answer? Are you submitting to Jesus as Lord? Are you trusting in him as saviour? Or would you say something else? It's quite common for people to say that Jesus is a, a good teacher or to say that he's a, a good role model. But let me be clear that, that that's not enough. Uh, we can either say that Jesus is who he says he is, which is Lord and saviour, or we can say that he's not who he said he is. There's no in-between option for us. We can't escape the question, and our answer to that question will dictate whether Jesus is for us or against us. I love how the author Dane Ortland uh, puts it. He says, if we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, then as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other, and to no one will Jesus be neutral. To no one will Jesus be neutral. There are two ways of experiencing the power of Jesus, one terrible and one wonderful. And perhaps that feels heavy. Well, it's good. We're talking about eternity. If this is true, we're talking about eternity. We should feel the appropriate weight of this question. I wouldn't hesitate to say that there's no more important question for you to grapple with today and no more important question for you to answer today than Jesus asking, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, if you're trusting in him today, well, I pray you're encouraged and reminded of the great and kind king that you follow. And if you're not yet trusting in him today, please consider this question. Perhaps today might be the day that you do submit to Jesus as king. The verse Aaron mentioned, Romans 6.23, says, For the wages of sin are death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It says our Lord at the end, and that's the profession of who Jesus is. If we call him our Lord, then we have received the gift of eternal life in him. So perhaps today is the day that you bend the knee and you say, I can't do it on my own. I'll submit to you, Jesus. I'll receive the rest that you offer. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'll be glad to talk with you. I'll be glad to hear. You probably have questions about it. Um, Aaron already offered as well. So you've got a few people to talk to. In these chapters we've got here today, King, king Jesus is on display as a great king, right? And God's people are, are experiencing his victories. They're enjoying the blessing of his rule. And we see that his enemies experience the power, his power against them. How wonderful then, how, how awe-inspiring to think that David is merely a shadow of the true king, Jesus Christ. 
So would that make us desperate to warn the people around us of who it is that they stand against if they're in their sins? Would it make us enthusiastic about proclaiming the power of this king and, and, and proclaiming and offering the free offer of the gospel, of his gospel? Would it comfort us and make us bold to know that King Jesus is on the throne, that he rules now and forevermore, and there is none greater? You pray with me. Jesus, we, we praise you as our king. Jesus, we love you. We trust you as our saviour. We praise you for the victory that you've accomplished on our behalf and, and the way that we enjoy that. I pray, God, that we would not take that for granted today, uh, Lord, and I pray if we've not considered it, Lord, that today would be the day that we, we truly think it through and, God, would you save people from their sins uh, who are in this room today. Oh, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sam mentioned in the, the sermon, I think the illustration of the shadow and the substance is really helpful. And we have the opportunity and privilege now to, to partake of a, a meal together, uh, not, not only a shadow, but a, a symbol and a seal that, that Christ himself has given his people um, so that we might sort of partake in the, the substance of the, the victory and the rule of our king. So the meal I'm talking about is, is communion or, or the Lord's Supper. It's a pretty simple meal of, of bread and, and grape juice that reminds us of the, the victory that Jesus has had over sin and death. Um, I want to invite all our, our welcome to partake of, of this meal. But because it is such a special meal, there's some consideration in terms of coming to it. We ask for our, our kids who have not yet been brought into communicant membership to, to not take it yet because uh, in taking the meal, we're, we're actually asked to, to consider our hearts. We want to make sure that you're at an age and stage where you can do that. Uh, if you're here as, a, as an adult, um, you are welcome. If Jesus is your Lord, you can say at the end of that, um, Romans 23, 6.23, uh, and proclaim him as Lord, you are welcome to partake of, of this meal. I would say if, if there's sin uh, that you're unrepentant of, that now is actually a time for you to consider that and repent of that. And as you do, feel free to come down, but if you're struggling to repent of that, uh, then ask you not to receive this meal as well because this is a special meal um, showing Jesus' victory over sin. Just quickly, I've got my daughter's notes here because I quickly wanted to actually show a couple of things from the sermon um, that, that just point us to, to this, this meal. Uh, Jesus talked about the king rejected. And uh, it's pretty heavy going to think about our, our sin uh, and the rejection. Uh, he spoke in terms of um, th those that are in rejection of Jesus, but, but all sin uh, is a rejection of, of him as our king. And so that, that points us to, to our need for, for someone to, to take the punishment for that. Right? And the wrath that Sam was talking about there, that has been taken fully and completely in our Saviour. This meal points us to that in the, the bloodshed and the body broken on our behalf. Now, Sam talked about the king's victory. This meal so wonderfully points us to the victory of Jesus over sin and death, the one who laid down his life and, and rose again from the grave to show that he had victory over sin. Uh, this meal shows us his, his laying down his life and his victory over sin. And, and thirdly, Sam spoke about the king's rule. 
One of the wonderful things about this meal is that we can partake of it presently, proclaiming that he is our king. Um, we know that he intercedes for us. He's active now. This isn't just a, something we look to the past of what Jesus has already done, um, but this meal in partaking of it now, this is a true reality for us now, that he is our king, that he loves us, that he comforts us, that he is with us, that he carries our burdens. So I want to invite um, all those to, to come. There'll be um, officers of the church, both sets of steps. Um, so I invite them to, to come down now to prepare to, to hand it out. Please come as you're ready to receive and we'll also have one of the officers going around for anyone who, who can't come, come to the front mobility-wise. Right. Now, Father God, we thank you for this simple yet so special meal, this symbol and token of our Saviour's love for us. Father, we... All of us have sinned. Uh, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Lord, we know that the wages of sin is death. We're so thankful, Lord, for the victory of our Saviour over that death and the gift of your grace. Our Father, as we've just partaken in this uh, special meal, I uh, pray that we'd be reminded afresh and anew of your victory and your rule. I pray that we would gladly and willingly submit to your, your rule because you love us, you care for us, and you know what is best for us. pray that we would live each and every day uh, for your glory. Father, we pray these things in the precious and wonderful name of our Saviour, Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing in response if you want to stand and join us.